Welcome to the Siskiyou Christian Fellowship Podcast. Our prayer is that the following verse-by-verse teaching of God's Word would bring you closer to Jesus. Paul, he, he left us with this, this wonderful truth uh, we looked at on, on Wednesday night as we finished chapter 8 up, that there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God. Nothing. There's not a single thing that can separate us from God's love. And, and Paul, he gave us a list there at the end of chapter 8. Uh, not tribulation, not distress, not persecution, not uh, famine, nakedness, peril, or sword. He goes on to say, neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, or any other thing can separate us from the love of God. Man, that's a pretty thorough list. There's not a single thing anywhere, uh, spiritually, physically, above, below, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing can tear us away from him. And not only can nothing tear us away from him, but as we discussed on Wednesday night, we can't even mess it up. That's what we talked about on Wednesday night. All of those things that Paul listed, those are things that happen to us. But what about the things we do to ourselves? Right? Can we mess up so bad that our relationship with Jesus is just blown? That's it? It's over? Oh, we can't. Nothing can separate us. And we looked at the, the stories of Jonah. Remember Jonah? And Jonah, he blew it big time. He was God's prophet. He loved the Lord. He was concerned with God's honor. But Jonah, man, he went the opposite direction the Lord told him to go. He went to not Nineveh. And as he was disobeying the Lord, man, the Lord didn't forsake him. The, the Lord didn't wash his hands of Jonah and say, well, I guess I'll just uh, leave him there. Uh, no, Jonah, as he was at uh, the darkest, deepest, most devastating point of his life, there he was in the belly of a fish, the lowest part of his life, in the bottom of the sea. And then things were dark. It, I don't think there was any lights wired into the, the belly of the whale. Uh, you know, things stank. It smelled like fish guts. But there all the while, Jonah was, was in that belly of that fish. God was getting Jonah to where he needed to go. And it's the same thing for us. There's nothing that can separate us from God's love. Even when we ourselves have made mistakes, the Lord is seeing us through. And so what was our conclusion we talked about on Wednesday night? Boy, what a blessed assurance we have. Even as we sang this morning, we just have this blessed assurance. We have a security in Christ that if we belong to him, if we are born again believers, man, he's going to see us through. Nothing can change that. And so as Paul is sharing this awesome truth, with the believers there in Rome, the Christians in Rome. And Paul's heart begins to, to go out to his fellow Jew, his fellow countrymen, uh, God's chosen people who had rejected Jesus. And so, you know, if the Jew had rejected Jesus, even though they were his chosen people, or they were his yeah, chosen people, uh, you know, was God still with them? Uh, why did God let them fail? Why did God let them reject him? And as we get into these next few chapters, we're making a, kind of a, a, a turn. It's a new section that we're getting into. Chapters 1 through 5 were all about justification, how we've been justified by faith, just as though we've never sinned. Beautiful truth that we've spent a lot of time looking at. Chapters 6 through 8, Paul gets into sanctification, that he's doing a work in us, that we've 
been set apart, we're being set apart, and ultimately we will be set apart. But now in chapters 9 through 11, Paul addresses Israel. You say, Pastor Jeremy, why do we care about Israel and what's going on with them? We're Christians, we're us, and they are them. Well, here's the thing about God's promises to Israel and why this is important. And we're going to see in these chapters that that God is not done with Israel. That although they have rejected him for a season as a nation, there's coming a time when they will see Jesus for who he is and they will be saved. This is important to us as Christians, though. Because if God can go back on his promise to the Jew to say that you're saved and then to leave them forsaken, then God can go back on his promises to us as Christians. But on the other hand, if God keeps his promise to the Jew, then we can know that God keeps his promise to us. And we know that he does. We know that he will. And that's what we see uh, taking place in these chapters. Paul, as he describes these beautiful truths that we get to enjoy as Christians, man, that our salvation is secure, he begins to think about his fellow Jew. And then the question that arises, well, is their salvation secure? God made promises to them. Is he going to follow through? Is he done with them? And that's what we're going to look at this morning. So verse 1 of chapter 9, it says, I tell the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart, for I could wish that I would myself be accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all uh, the eternally blessed God. Amen. And so Paul, he has a broken heart for the Jew because the Jew has rejected Jesus. Jesus came to the Jewish people and he showed himself, he presented himself to them as their Messiah, as their Savior, as their King. But the Jews did not accept Jesus Instead of receiving him, they, they killed him. He was murdered on a, a Roman cross. And in that season, boy, the nation of Israel missed out on a great opportunity to, to right then and there be saved and to usher in the kingdom of God. But just because they missed that opportunity doesn't mean that God is done with them. And so living in this state now to where they're separated from God, Paul's heart just goes out to them and his heart is so broken for his countrymen that he says, man, if there's anything that I could do to see those people saved, man, I would do it. Even if it meant that I myself would lay down my salvation, that I would be accursed from God, that they might be uh, united with Christ. You say, wow, Paul, that is... Value. I don't think that I could make that claim uh, in all honesty. Paul makes that claim in honesty. He says, man, I would trade in my salvation to see those people saved. So, oh, man, that is, that's noble. Yeah, absolutely. But it is unnecessary. It is absolutely. There, there, there's no need for Paul to do that. Uh, there's no need for Paul to become accursed. Why? Because Jesus was already a curse that the Jewish people might be saved. Right? That's what Galatians tells us, that Christ has, redeemed, or Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree. See, Jesus has already become a curse. He took on the curse of the law, the punishment for not 
uh, obeying the law was put upon Jesus so that we might be saved, so that the Jew might be saved. Paul doesn't need to, to do that. Uh, Jesus has already done it, and that's important for us to understand. But Paul's heart, it was just broken. He was bummed out. But it wasn't just Paul who had a broken heart for the Jews. Jesus had a broken heart for the Jew. Remember there uh, in, towards the end of Jesus' ministry, uh, there in, in Matthew 23, where Jesus looked over Jerusalem and he just wept. And he said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather you uh, together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wing, but you were not willing. Uh, and see, your house is left to desolate. And so Jesus, knowing that the Jews had rejected him as their Savior and Messiah and King, boy, he wept. Because it was not his will that they would perish, but it was his will that they would be saved. And so the rejection of Jesus by the Jews was a tragedy. It, it broke Paul's heart. It, it broke Jesus' heart. But as I was studying through this and really thinking on this, and just kind of praying it out, I thought, man, does this break our heart? Are we brokenhearted? Not just about the Jew. We are to be brokenhearted and concerned with the, the state of the Jews and their salvation. We're to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Uh, we're to be those who witness uh, you know, the reality of Jesus, that he is the Messiah, to the Jew. But not just to the Jew. What about to the lost around us? What about the lost in our own society, our culture, the people we work with and go to school with? That's a, a real question. As we study God's word, it, it calls us out onto the carpet as Christians. It's so easy to just kind of put it into neutral and just go through life. And we're worried about birthday parties and what I'm doing at work tomorrow and boy, I need to paint the house and all this and that. And, and we lose sight of the Great Commission, the work that the Lord has put us to to be the salt and the light. We're the bearers of the good news. We look at a lost and dying world, and you don't need me to stand up here and tell you that the world is in a bad spot. And we look at it, and you can trace all the problems that we see on the news. Those things that you go, oh, man, you can trace it all back to sin. You can trace it all back to the fact that people need Jesus. And so are our hearts broken for the lost? Are we willing to lay aside our comfort, to, to lay aside our thing, to just have a conversation with Jesus. So often, the pettiest of things keep us from proclaiming the truth. Well, what will they think about me? Who cares? Right? They're perishing, and we have the answer. And so I thought this morning, boy, what a good reminder that is as we get started, as we look at just Paul's reaction to his countrymen who were lost. And man, may the Lord give us that same heart, that we would have eyes that are open, that we would be his hands and feet, have hearts for those who are just hurting and lost, and that we would be bold in our proclamation of the truth, especially in a world that wants to just shut us up, right? Jesus, we're going to talk about at the end of the, the, the study this morning, that he was a stumbling block. And the, the, the gospel is an offense to the world. And may we be a people who proclaim it boldly, even though it is offensive to our uh, culture. And so Paul, his heart was just burdened uh, by the Jews. And, you know, one of the reasons was that they really were God's chosen people. You know, you think about the Jews' relationship to God. He took this peculiar people, a small nation. They were really nobody. They were small in stature. They were small in number. He said, you're going to be my people. I'm going to do a great thing through you in, in making you mine. And, and he showed them his glory in the tabernacle, 
that, that mobile worship center that was with them in the wilderness and in the, the temple later. God's Shekinah glory was there. They, they witnessed God's glory in the pillar of fire and the pillar of smoke. Uh, God gave them his law, his written word through Moses. God gave uh, the Jewish people the opportunity to serve him and worship him. It was at the temple through the priesthood that the sacrifices were offered and uh, you know, the festivities took place and, and worship went up. Uh, it was the Jewish people who God gave promises to, to keep them and to save them, to give them a new heart, that the Messiah would come through their lineage. They were the descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Uh, that was the promises were made to them, the covenants that were made to them. That the everywhere uh, you go, where everywhere the sole of your foot touches, God told Abraham, this will be your land. That Abraham, your descendants will be uh, as numerous as the stars in the heavens and the sands of the sea. And, and the nations of the world will be blessed through you. All these promises that God made to his people concerning his covenant and concerning his land. Which, by the way, is very interesting. right? We, we, we studied through the text this morning. And we know that God gave the Jewish people the promised land. That was what he did. There's no question about it. We can look at the scriptures and we can say, oh, there it is very plainly. But yet there's this debate, there's this war that's raging today as we speak. And what is that battle over? It's over the very land that God promised to his people. And you know what we don't hear very often in the news? We hear a whole lot of, boy, you know, Israel the occupier, Israel the apartheid state. All of that is not true, just so you know. And it's very easy if you just do a little bit of homework and research. Uh, Israel is not an apartheid state by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, and the land that they're fighting over, God clearly gave to the Jew. Uh, it's not my job to be politically correct. It's my job to proclaim the truth. And that's what it is. And you don't hear people talking about that. When you hear about that debate and that argument and that war, all the native Palestinians, that's not true. Thousands of years before there was ever the such thing as a Palestinian, the Jews were given that land by God. They occupied it. They dwelled there. That's their heritage. Anyways, I didn't mean to go down that rabbit trail. I don't even remember what I was talking about. Oh, yeah. So there's all these promises that God made the Jew. And so that's why Paul's like, what's going on? You know, and really Paul knows the truth. In all of this, what you have to understand is that Paul is a master at laying out his argument, and he's anticipating these questions that we would have, right? So if we've been saved now as believers, all these promises, well, what about the Jew? What about the promises God has made um, to them? And so we'll continue on in verse uh, 6. But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect. God's word hasn't failed, Paul is saying very clearly. For they that are... Uh, for they that are not, oh, pardon me, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham, but in Isaac your seed shall be called. That is those who are the children of the flesh. These are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah will have a son. So what is this all about? So after uh, Paul is discussing really the, his heart being broken that the Jews have rejected Jesus, he, he starts to talk about, well, who is Israel anyways? Who really is Israel? And he, and he makes this statement. He says, they are not all Israel 
who are of Israel, and they are not children because really they are the seed of Abraham. So what, what is he getting at? Uh, who really is uh, Israel? What does it mean, basically what Paul's saying, what does it mean to be a child of God? Okay, And it's more than just a physical connection. It, it, it's more than just uh, genetics. It, it's more than than being a descendant of Abraham. And what you have to remember from the Jewish mindset, and we've talked about this, that the Jew, from their perspective, they said, well, we're descendants of Abraham, therefore we are spiritual children of God. Well, well, Paul's going to correct us on that. It has nothing to do with their national heritage that makes them Jews. And we fall into this trap all the time as Americans. Uh, We make the association that just because we're Americans, we're Christians. America! You know, I'm a... I'm a conservative Republican, so therefore I am a Christian by default. That's not true. You know, my grandparents went to church, and my great-grandparents went to church, and my, my parents took me to church, therefore I'm a Christian. That doesn't make you a Christian. What makes you a Christian is that you believe by faith. And that's what Paul is getting at. Who is Israel? Spiritually, uh, there are those who are governed by God. Who was Israel? What does Israel mean? You have to go back to Jacob. He, he's the, the patriarch, the father of Israel. Abraham begot Isaac, Isaac, Jacob, right? Jacob, his 12 sons became the 12 tribes of Israel. But Jacob's name didn't stay Jacob, it changed to Israel, right? Remember Jacob, he, his name, Jacob, actually means heel snatcher or supplanter, conniver. He's sneaky. And even as he was being birthed, he was struggling with his older brother for dominance. And he came out holding on to the heel of his twin. And that's why he was called heel snatcher. But all throughout his life, you see that in his, uh, in his character. Man, he was a wheeler and a dealer. He got by on his, you know, the, the way that he could talk people into things. And, and he conned his brother out of his birthright. He ripped his uncle Laban off. But it all came back to bite him. And there Jacob was, heel snatcher, conniver, deceiver, supplanter. And Esau, his brother, burly dude, he was going to whoop Jacob. And Jacob knew it. And Jacob was freaking out. He was sending gifts to his brother and everything else. Oh, here's a bunch of donkeys and here's a bunch of camels. This is peace offering to my brother. Don't kill me for stealing your birthright. But he was so panicked out that night, the Lord showed up to Jacob. And Jacob, it says, wrestled with the Lord and would not let the Lord go until the Lord blessed him. Now, that doesn't mean that the Lord couldn't escape because Jacob was tough. Uh, You know, it's like when you're leaving to work. Dads, you know this. You're going to work and you're just like, no, please don't go. I want to play Mario. And they're dragging, you know. And You you say, no, I'm going. The Lord could have very easily just gotten rid of Jacob. But Jacob, his whole thing was, Lord, please, I'm not letting you go until you bless me, until you're with me. And the Lord blessed him. And he received that mark in his flesh. His hip was thrown out. He had a limp for the rest of his life. But not just that, his name was changed. And this is the important part. I said all that to say this. He went from Jacob to Israel. And as where Jacob means heel snatcher, supplanter, carries with it the idea of being a conniver and a sneak. He went from that, Jacob, to Israel. And Israel means God will prevail or God wins. Or surrendered to God. That was it. God won in Jacob's life. And from that point on, he was governed by God. So who is Israel? What does it mean to be a child of God? It means to be governed by God. 
to be surrendered to God. And I love the way Paul clears that up for us because he starts to talk about the nation of Israel and this question of has God forsaken them? And he says, well, actually, well, who really is Israel? And that's those who believe on God. Now, very quickly before we move on, there are those who will launch off into this false doctrine of replacement theology where they say, well, we have then replaced Israel. We are the spiritual Israel. God's promises to those people no longer count. They've been transferred to us, and that's not true. We are Israel spiritually, but we have been grafted into God's family along with the Jew. As we're going to see, the Lord is not done with the Jew. His promise to them stands, and that's the point of these three chapters. So just remember that as we make our way forward uh, in this text. Uh, Verse 10 says, And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac. Now this is describing Jacob and Esau, his twin. This is the guy we were just talking about. Uh, Conceived by one man in our father Isaac. For the children not yet being born, nor having done anything good or evil, that the purpose of God according to the election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau... I have hated. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. For the scriptures say to the Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills, and on whom he wills, he hardens. So now in this portion, God really kind of, uh, through Paul, uh, he, he, he moves on in this, this, this argument, this discussion. Right? So Israel has rejected God. Who is Israel, really? I mean, spiritual Israel is true Israel. But scaling back, God will have mercy on whoever he wants to have mercy on. God will uh, show grace to whoever he wants to show grace to. And, And Paul uses these examples of Jacob and Esau and uh, of this, uh, you know, this quote that he told Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy and compassion on whom I'll have compassion. And he uses this story of Pharaoh. Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And all these things we say, well, well, man, that doesn't seem fair, does it? That, that God would, would love Jacob and hate Esau. It doesn't seem fair that God would harden Pharaoh's heart. You guys remember Pharaoh? He, he was the one who had God's people held in captivity. And God came to him over and over again and said, let my people go. That's how old I am. I remember that special. Uh, but he wouldn't. He, he was hardened against the Lord. So, so why is it fair that God loved Jacob and not Esau and, and that he hardened Pharaoh's heart and that Pharaoh was set for destruction? Well, here's a couple things I want you to keep in mind. First of all, God is good. Okay, God is just. Uh, God is love. God is patient. Uh, his will is to save and not destroy. Never forget that. When, you, when you're wrestling these things out, God's will is to save and not to destroy. How do we know? Well, because he gave his son, Jesus, on the cross to die for our sins that we might be saved. That's a pretty good indication, right? Also in 2 Peter uh, chapter 3 and verse 9, it says, The Lord is not slack 
concerning his promise, as some men count slackness. What is Peter talking about? What is the promise that God is not slack in? The promise of destruction. So when we look around and we see all sorts of evil taking place in the world and we say, God, why don't you judge that evil? Peter says, well, God isn't slack concerning his promise to bring justice. But, but he's patient, he goes on to say. But he's long-suffering towards us. Why would God be long-suffering towards us? Well, not willing that any should perish. He doesn't want us to perish. He wants us as humanity uh, to turn to him and to repent. Uh, again, Ezekiel thirty-three eleven says that God has no pleasure in the destruction of the wicked, but that uh, the, he desires the wicked to turn from his evil ways and live. So, so remember, when we're wrestling through these things, well, why did God love Jacob and hate Esau? Uh, God desires to save, not to destroy, and he proved it on the cross. Secondly, when we wrestle these things out, we say, I don't understand. God is God, and we are not. Remember that God owes no man. Just like we talked about last week, God owes humanity no good thing. If we go to God and say, God, I want what I deserve. If we were to demand from God what he owes us, what would we receive? Destruction, judgment, punishment. Why? Because all have sinned. There are none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. What we deserve is destruction, but in God's graciousness, he has saved many. God is God, and, and I'm not saying that we're going to wrap our minds around it this morning, right? But what we do need to understand is that God's ways are higher than our ways. God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts. As far as the heavens are from the earth, we don't understand. And that's a good thing, right? Because why? Because if God was small enough to understand, he wouldn't be big enough to worship. And so we're not going to understand these things, but God is sovereign, uh, what right do we have to say to God, well, Lord, I, I don't agree. I, I don't think that you got it right. I think you missed the mark. I think you were unfair there. You guys remember the parable about the, the vineyard uh, owner who went out and hired the laborers for the day there in Matthew chapter 20? There's a vineyard owner, and he needed some work done, and so he went out first thing in the morning, 6 o'clock, hired some dudes to come work for him. He said, I'll give you guys each a day's wage, a fair, a denarius, and then uh, a few hours later, the third hour of the day, 9 o'clock, he went back to the market and he saw some dudes standing around with their hands in their pocket. Hey, come to work for me. I'll, I'll give you a fair wage. And then again, the sixth hour. And then the 11th hour. It, the 11th hour is one hour before quitting time. He said, guys, come and work for me. You don't stand around the market with your hands in your pockets. Come work for me and make some, some extra dough. And so they worked for that hour. And at the end of the day, the vineyard owner he went to pay all the workers, and he started with the guys he hired last, the dudes who only worked one hour. And he gave those guys a full day's wage, a denarius, the same wage that he had promised the guys that he hired at 6 o'clock in the morning. So now you can begin to see the picture unfold. Right? You've been working all day in the vineyard for a day's wage. Some dude shows up for an hour. He gets a full day's wage too. You're thinking, oh, boy, I'm going to get good payday today. Because if I worked all day, and that guy only worked an hour and got it, I mean, I'm going to get like four days' pay. But the Lord gave everybody a day's pay. Now, does that mean that those people got ripped off or that God was generous? It means that God was generous. And that was the point at the end of the parable. God says, can I do what I want with my own stuff? Does my goodness give you an evil eye? And that's the same thing with us. We have to understand that God is, is fair and he'll do what he wants because he is God. But remember, he's good. He's 
loving. He's merciful and he's patient. Also, remember that God chooses people according to his foreknowledge. Now, we dove into this topic last week, and it's a big one. What is foreknowledge? You guys remember back to the future. Marty McFly, he, he goes to the year 2015. Again, I'm still disappointed that we don't have flying cars and it's 2023. <laughs> but he got that sports almanac. Remember, he stole it so that when he went back in time that he could bet on all the games and win tons of money. It wasn't a bet for him because he had the foreknowledge. He already knew who was going to win. And it's the same thing with God. God has foreknowledge. He knows how things are going to play out. So why did God choose Jacob and not Esau? And I'll be honest with you. This one's a, a rough one for me because from my perspective, I would have chosen Esau. Right? Because Jacob, uh, he was a total mama's boy. He was a sissy. He, 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 he hung out in the kitchen with his mom and he baked goods. He, he was just kind of a wimp. Esau, he was this burly, hairy dude, big old beard, master hunter. I'd been like, my money's on Esau for sure. But see, God in his foreknowledge knew that Jacob, although he was shady, would be one who in the end would be surrendered to God and want God's will for his life. But he knew that Esau would reject God. See, here's the thing about Esau. Esau sold his birthright for a bowl of soup. You say, ah, oh, what's the big deal? Well, his birthright was really the responsibility to lead his family in the things of the Lord. And so he said, no big deal. I don't care about leading my family in the Lord. Here, I'll trade that to you for a bowl of soup. He didn't get mad until his blessing was stolen from him. And the blessing came with it, the windfall of inheritance. That's when he got mad. So really, Esau was a carnal man. Esau was a man who wanted nothing to do with God. See, I would have chosen the wrong dude. Because I don't have, but God in his foreknowledge knew. That's why God in his foreknowledge, uh, that's why God was able to harden Pharaoh's heart. Because God knew, he had the foreknowledge, that, that Pharaoh, he would harden his own heart. Pharaoh wanted nothing to do with God. It's the same thing for us. Why did God save me? We talk about being chosen and being the called and being elected. Why is it that we're saved? Because God knew that you would want to be saved. He knew that you would love him, that you would want all that he has for you, that you would want to be conformed into the image of his son. And that is why he called you by his Holy Spirit. So don't forget that about foreknowledge. And then lastly, before we move on, and I better pick up the pace here, uh, is that he does all of this for his own purposes. In the, in the rejecting of Esau and the choosing of Jacob, in the hardening of uh, Pharaoh's heart. Uh, God worked it all together, not only for our good, but for his good. See, here's the thing, is God is sovereign. And we cannot mess up God's plan. God, simply, in his foreknowledge, he, he knows that he's given us free will. He can make the decisions that we've made in our own free will, and he can use those decisions to accomplish his own holy and good ends. He can take the things that we wrestle with, we don't understand. We see in the Bible, like, that looks rough. He takes that and he accomplishes his own will to demonstrate his power, to demonstrate his might and his mercy, his grace and his love. Right? So let me ask you this. Was it God's will for me to be a complete idiot when I was in my late teens and 20s? To almost destroy my... Was that God's will? No, it wasn't. But he took those stupid decisions that I made... And he used them to demonstrate his grace. Because people look upon my life now, I'm not even kidding you, I run into teachers, and they're like, okay, are you fresh out of prison, or how did this work out for you? 
And I'm like, no, actually, I'm a pastor. And then I'm waving them back. I get the, you know, the ammonia out and the smelling salts. See, I'm a trophy of God's grace. He used those things that were not necessarily in his will to accomplish, to demonstrate his love. Same with Pharaoh. Was it God's will that Pharaoh reject him, that, hard, that Pharaoh would harden his heart? No, because it's God's will that none be lost, that all come to the saving knowledge of his son, Jesus. But God took uh, Pharaoh's hardness, and he used it to demonstrate his power. Remember when Israel sent the spies across the Jordan River to spy out the land? They ended up in Rahab's house. What did Rahab say? She's like, I'm with you boys, because we've heard about how mighty your God is and how he took and destroyed the Egyptian army in the Red Sea. That all unfolded because Pharaoh's heart was hardened. See, God is, is sovereign. He's working all things together for his own purposes. Verse 19 uh, says, and, and you will say then, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? But indeed, O oh man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, Why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay uh, from the same lump to make a vessel of honor and another of dishonor? What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, mercy which he had prepared beforehand? Uh, even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. And now Paul's going to give this demonstration of how the Lord uh, has, has saved both the Jew and the Gentile. First, he starts with the Gentile, this quote here from Hosea. I will call them my people who are not my people, and her beloved who was not beloved. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the God. That's us. We were not his people. We were not his beloved. But now we are because of Jesus. And also now he says the Jew. I'm not done with the Jew. And this is important that we understand because he's going to expand on this later in the next couple chapters. Uh, Isaiah also cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the children of Israel was as the sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved. For he will finish the work and cut it short uh, in righteousness because the Lord will make a short work upon the earth. And again, Isaiah says... Unless the Lord Almighty had left us a seed, he would have become like Sodom and we would have been made like Gomorrah. So, so Paul here, he starts out this section by saying, you know, what are we going to say? So if Esau was lost, if, 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 if Pharaoh was lost, and, and God, that was God's will, right? Remember in his foreknowledge, he used that to serve his purposes. It, well, if that was his will, then they had no choice in the matter. And God really forced them into this situation where they had no choice but to be destroyed. Are you more confused now than you were? Right? So it's like if I took my son, my six-year-old son, Abram, uh, and all you dads know this thing where you take your kids and you go, oh, stop slapping yourself, you know, when you wrestle. It's like if I took my son's hand and, and we, we went over to his uh, 18-year-old sister. I know that's a big gap. If you want to know the story, come talk to me after church. But if I took my son's hand and, and I took it and I slapped his sister in the face with it and then I grounded him for slapping his sister, you say, man, you're a terrible dad. And you would be right, right? That would be unjust. But that's not what God did. See, and that's what Paul's point is. And that's why he goes on to give those examples of how he saved the Jew and the Gentile. He's not done with them. Nobody's painted into a corner, right? That, that's what Paul says is that God was 
patient. He was long-suffering with the, the vessels of destruction. And for us, that's hard for us to wrestle through. We say, how could God destroy anybody? But we have to understand is that there is going to, there, there, there's no situation whereby somebody says, man, I, I really wanted to, to be saved. I wanted to have my sins forgiven. And, and God rejected me because I was predestined for hell. That doesn't happen. That's, that's not true. God has given everybody a chance. God is, is patient with everybody. He gave Esau a choice to make. He gave Pharaoh a choice to make. He gave Israel a decision to make over and over and over and over and over again. When anybody finds themselves in hell, it's not because God sent them there. It's because they chose it and they had to step over his dead body and the cross to get there. Never forget that. And so Paul really demonstrates that in these verses. And again, he reiterates the idea, who are we to challenge God? You guys can go back and look at the story of Job. Uh, that was something that God did. And, and Job said, or God said to Job, where were you, Job, when I, I made the earth? Oh, that's right. You weren't there. You don't understand. Uh, what right does the, the clay have to say to the potter? Why have you made me thus? Right? God is God. Oh, we might not understand, but we don't have to understand to trust. We have all uh, been given great patience. We have all been given uh, a choice and the Lord has not caused any of us to reject him or to sin. And now we'll look at this, this last section and hopefully tie it all together a little bit. So this last couple verses, verse 30, what shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained righteousness, even the righteousness of faith, but Israel pursuing the law of righteousness has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were, by the works of the law. For they stumbled at that stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. So Paul finishes up this, this chapter really by, by showing that it's, it's by faith that we're saved to begin with. He uses the two examples. So he takes the Gentile, right, who really had, had nothing. Right? The Gentile was in the dark, so to speak. We did not have the law. We did not have the priesthood. We did not have the temple. We did not have the promises or the heritage. And yet, we have been saved. We have been made children of God. How? By faith. By believing. And on the other side, right, there's the Jew. They had it all, you could say. They had the law, the priesthood, the temple, God's presence, everything. And yet, here they are in this, this place where they have rejected God, and now God has rejected them. And you say, well, how does that work? Uh, it's because they did not have faith. And that's what Paul tells us. It wasn't about what you had or didn't have. It's about whether or not you responded in faith. And so the Jew, as opposed to responding in faith, what did they do? They threw uh, you know, their genealogy through their inheritance by being sons of Abraham said, that's how we're going to please God. By just being sons and daughters of Abraham. That's how we'll get God's approval. We'll get God's approval by keeping the law through religious rituals and activities and rites. And so when Jesus came onto the scene and said, hey, I'm here to save you, the Jews said, you talking to me? Save who? Save me? No, we're good, man. We're keeping the law. We're worshiping God. We don't need to be saved. 
And so instead of seeing Jesus as their savior, he became a stumbling block. It tripped them up because they didn't recognize their need for salvation. Jesus is the rock of stumbling for the Jew, the rock of offense. Jesus, by the way, is spoken about as a rock all throughout Scripture. Uh, Jesus was the rock in the wilderness. Remember uh, back uh, in Exodus, there's the, the rock in the wilderness, the, the roses, the roses. <laughs> Who's roses? There's Moses. There is no roses. That Moses smote with the staff and it brought forth water. There in Corinthians, Paul tells us that that rock was Jesus. That rock that followed them all throughout the desert. There's the rock again. It gave them water. That, that Jesus, the rock, and he's the life giver. You don't have water in the desert. You're toast. What is water in the desert, man? It's life. It's refreshment. That's who Jesus is. Jesus is spoken of as the foundation, right? That you can build on no other foundation other than, than Jesus Christ. Uh, that's what it says in 1 Corinthians 3.11. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which was already laid, which is Jesus Christ. And Jesus himself goes on to talk about himself as the foundation. Right? That, that anybody who builds their life upon his words, who, who hears the words of Jesus and does them, that they're the ones who build their house, their life, on the firm rock, the rock of Jesus, that when the, the storms of life come, boy, they won't be taken down because their lives are built on Jesus, our firm foundation. He, he's the, the chief cornerstone. What is a cornerstone? Uh, cornerstone is the most important stone in a, a, a masonry foundation, right? So in Psalm 118, it said, uh, that the stone which the builders rejected, who are the builders of Israel, they rejected it, they crucified Jesus. Uh, he has become the chief cornerstone, the most important uh, stone, the, the foundation. The cornerstone was the stone that all of the rest of the building is uh, aligned to. Right? And you know if you're building something, if you're out of plumb or out of square, a quarter inch at the foundation, by the time you get to the roof, you're in trouble. Right? So if you're building a shed and you're like, ah, it won't matter, mm, it will, wait till you get to the roof. The most important stone. So Jesus is not only in our life and our refreshment, that rock in the wilderness, but he's our foundation. And he's what we align our lives to, build our lives upon. But it's interesting that that, that word for cornerstone is also in separate places translated to capstone. Now what is the capstone? See, where the cornerstone is the, the first stone that is laid, where all the other stones are lined up to it, the capstone is the last stone that holds everything together, right? The first and the last, the alpha and the omega. Jesus is God. And he's the one who holds our lives together. And in fact, that's what it tells us in Colossians 1, 16. For by him, Jesus, all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist. He's holding all things together uh, in our lives. And that's the good news about the rock, right? He's life, and he's refreshment. He's our foundation. We can align our lives to the Lord and know that we're heading the way of truth. And he, he is the capstone, holding everything together. When I feel like life is flying apart, man, the Lord's got me. But the rock also speaks of judgment, the rock of judgment. And there in the, the prophecy of Daniel, you guys remember King Nebuchadnezzar? King Nebuchadnezzar, he had this, 
this dream of a multi-metallic image, this statue, and, and each layer of metal, you know, the head of gold and the, the shoulders of silver and the belly of bronze and the legs of iron and the feet of irons and clay, each one of those layers represented a kingdom that would rule throughout history, Rome and the Medes and the Persians and, and the Greeks and the Roman Empire, all of that. But as you see in that statue represented all the kingdoms of the world, there's another image. It's the rock cut out of the mountain without hands that comes and brings judgment on all of the world that, that grows into a mountain that fills the whole earth. Speaking of Jesus as the judge, Jesus will judge the world. And then Jesus said of himself, and we'll finish with this. Hang with me for just a couple more minutes. In Matthew, Jesus said of himself, and he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. But on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. So I mean, so you fall on the rock and you're broken into pieces. But if the rock falls on you, you're crushed into dust. What does that mean? So Jesus is the rock. He's the life giver. He's the foundation. He's the one holding it all together. And if we fall on him in brokenness, brokenness, broken by our sin, broken because we're not yet saved, broken that we're separated from him by our, we, we're, we fall on him at his mercy on our knees in brokenness. And we'll be saved. Even as it says in our text, we will belong to the group that whosoever believes in him will not be put to shame. The shame of your sin, the consequence of death, dealt with if you will fall on the rock in brokenness over your sin and repent. Pretty good deal. But he's the judge. And if we refuse, if we harden our hearts, if we reject the Lord, then we will be judged and we will be crushed under that judgment. And Jesus has done everything that he can that we might be those who are saved and not those who are crushed. But he's left the choice up to us whether or not we are going to surrender or not. Jesus was a stumbling block to the Jews. They couldn't get it. There were things they didn't understand. Maybe there's things that you don't understand this morning. Hey, don't let it trip you up. The Lord has given you enough to go by, to trust him, to take that step of faith. The Jews thought that they didn't need a savior. And Jesus became a stumbling block to them. This morning, I want you to know. You say, I'm a pretty good person. You're not good enough. Now, that's nothing against your character. But that's just to say that God's standard is perfect. If you've ever told a lie. If you've ever looked on a, a, another with lust. If you've ever had hatred in your heart. You are guilty. And the wages of sin is death. And don't get tripped up like the Jews did, thinking that you don't need a savior. See, here's the thing. The gospel, it's offensive to the world. It's countercultural. Everything that the gospel is, the world hates. Don't let it trip you up. Come to Jesus. As Christians, you know, what a joyful reality that we have. Jesus is our life. He is our refreshment. He is our foundation. You build your life on him, there's nothing that can take you down. He's the one holding everything together. But if you're not saved, man, it's not good. And I'm not up here trying to preach hell and brimstone or anything else. I just want you guys to know if you've never accepted Christ, if you've never had your sins forgiven, man, have that burden lifted off you this morning. How? And the Bible says if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead three days later, he was buried, he died on the cross and was buried. Believe that. Do you believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins? 
Do you believe that he was buried and rose three days later? And you're saved. That's a business that you do between you and God. You don't have to come up here before everybody and say a special prayer. You can do it right in your seat. You can do it right now. God, I know I'm a sinner. That's what it looks like to be broken on the rock. But I know I'm a sinner. I know that I've blown it. But I know that you're good. And I know that you forgive. And that's what I want. That's what I desire. Walk in that this morning. Beautiful, isn't it? So cool. And I can't wait to dig into these next chapters. We'll, we'll continue on on Wednesday night. And we really will see how the Lord is not done with Israel. And by implication that he'll never be done with us. But this morning... Man, as we have an opportunity to come and take communion, Jesus told his disciples in the upper room, I want you guys to do this in remembrance of me. I want you to remember that I gave my body for you on the cross in your place. I want you to remember that. It's important. I want you to remember uh, that I, I bled for you and that my blood covered your sins, that you might be justified. See, Jesus, he knows our frame. We, we talked about that on Wednesday or Thursday at men's Bible studies. We were looking over Psalm 103. That God knows our frame. He knows I'm forgetful and you're forgetful. He knows that we need to be reminded often of what he's done for us and who we are now as a result. I need to be reminded often. That's right. I'm a blood-bought saint. Sin has no grip on me. I'm saved. Come and remember this morning. And how often were the disciples to, to do this in remembrance of Jesus? He says, often as you do this, do what? They were having dinner. They had bread and wine. Super common things. Often we're to remember that reality. And so, man, those of us who are believers, come this morning and take communion and remember God's goodness. Rejoice in the fact that he's your life and refreshment, your foundation, and that he's holding your life together. Man, what, what a great thing to rejoice in. And those of you who aren't saved, and I don't do this to exclude you, but the Bible says, hey, this is not something that's for you. You're not to take communion in a way that dishonors it. And if you don't believe that Jesus died for your sins on the cross, as you take and eat of the cracker and drink of the, the bread, you're kind of making a mockery out of it, even though you might mean to. So I don't want to say, stay in your seat. What I would say is, get saved. And then come and take communion. Because what a wonderful thing it is. None of us deserve to come and take communion. You have to understand that this is a privilege we didn't earn. This is something that we get to enjoy because Jesus died for us. And so, man, I'll stop talking. Let's pray. <laughs> Lord, thank you so much just for your truth. Lord, for your love for us. Lord, that you demonstrated your love for us on the cross. Lord, that we truly are trophies of your grace. Lord, that you've redeemed us and rescued us and pulled us up out of the miry clay. Lord, that you've forgiven us of our sins and set us free given us a purpose in life. And Lord, we just rejoice. Rejoice in your grace, in your kindness, in your mercy, and in your love. And Lord, as we come to the table, what a reminder. We can hold these things and tangibly take them in. And I pray that as we take them in physically, that we would take them in spiritually, that truth all over again, that we truly would be reminded, even as you wanted us to be, that you paid the price, that you did the work, that we might be yours. We love you, Lord, and as we come to the table, I pray that you would just bring refreshment and remembrance. Lord, that if there's repentance that needs to take place, Lord, that we would do that, that we wouldn't be flippant about the way we approach you, but that we'd come before you with reverence and rejoicing, Lord. We love you and we praise you. We thank you again in Jesus' name, amen.
We hope you've enjoyed listening to this teaching of God's Word presented by Siskiyou Christian Fellowship. We pray it's blessed you and given you a greater understanding of the Bible. To learn more about us, visit siskiyouchristianfellowship.com. Thank you.